Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. guys welcome back to brandon's buzz i am brandon it's tuesday night july 27th 2010 10 p.m in the east 7 p.m out west 9 p.m here in texas and yes i will confess the summer doldrums have set in for me with regard to this show but i am ecstatic to be back on the air and i've got a good one on tap for you tonight a bit later on i'm thrilled to present a conversation i conducted a few weeks ago with a local singer songwriter name of jonathan clay he's just released a, a second his second album it's brand new uh, and he's going to be in here to tell you all about that uh, a bit later on. But first up tonight, my first guest broke through on a mind-blowingly massive scale almost 10 years ago as a founding member of the band The Calling. Their debut single was a radio classic entitled Wherever You Will Go, which remains one of the most listened-to tracks in American radio history, and it sent him from obscurity into overdrive literally in a finger snap. Uh, the Calling came apart a few years later, and he's been laying low in the meantime, but he's back with a brand new solo album, a terrific record entitled We've All Been There, and he's come by the buzz tonight to tell us all about it. You know, I'll tell you, I'm a big fan of this guy, and I couldn't be more thrilled with the fact that he's not only back in my CD player after a too-long hiatus, but that he's here to talk to me about that very fact. His demeanor is cool, his material is compelling, and his name is Alex Band. Hey, how you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you, sir? Good, good. Just uh, on tour on the East Coast right now. I'm actually in a few dates opening for the band Live, which is really cool because I grew up listening to them. Has it, has it been a while, or, or have you been playing steadily throughout this kind of hiatus from the from the spotlight? No, I mean I was. It was a five year hiatus, and it wasn't from my doing. I was stuck in the record label nightmares and legal crap, and I wasn't allowed to play shows. wasn't allowed to release music or anything. So it was a long. Uh, a long process to get to this point. So, no, I mean, I started working the single tonight for this album four months ago, and I've been on the road, Europe and America, back and forth, uh, working the single, but I just started with my new band. I hired uh, playing full band shows, and I have a headlining tour starting next week over in uh, in San Diego and then L.A. and on and on. Tell me, just tell me the difference between, you know, being out there on your own and being out there as a member of a band, kind of, uh, you don't want to say exactly hiding behind the band name, but you know, it, I would imagine it's different being out there on your own as Alex Band. Well, the, yeah, the big difference is that was the confusion factor around the calling, which still exists, in that it wasn't a band. I would just hire. If I was in the studio, I'd hire people to play on the track. If I was on tour, I'd hire young guys to play with me. So that was never changing thing, and we never, you know, it wasn't a band. So. That was one of the main reasons I ended up, you know, I was doing everything and I ended up just going as a solo artist and pursuing that about five years ago gotcha. and getting away from the name just kind of to not be so confusing. Although my last name is Band, so <laughs> I've got this, uh, I'm kind of cursed no matter what I got now, of course. <laughs> I was just in uh, Germany on tour and, you know, everyone's like, it's the Alex Band. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, not no. the Alex Band. <laughs> my name is Alex Band. The calling wasn't a band. It's all, yeah. So, anyway, I'm, uh, you know, slowly teaching the world that uh, me. It's, it's very funny you say that. I had a singer-songwriter in here a couple months ago by the name of Terry Brothers, and, and he has a similar thing because uh, people time and again think that he is a member of a band called the Carey Brothers, and, and it's actually his name is Carey Brothers. So it's, it's very funny that you say that. Yeah, there you go. 
Band is definitely a unique last name, though, to, yeah. be, you know, to be a musician. And, it's, yeah, I don't know if this has been done before. So yeah, It's almost funny. as though you were doomed to be a, a singer. Yeah, well, I always knew I wanted to be since uh, day one. So, so uh, let's talk about that. Let's set the table here. Give me the 60-second bio on Alex Band. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that out of the way. Um, I was raised in Hollywood. I was uh, born in Los Angeles and went to a school called Oakwood. But I got my first record deal when I was 15, and I uh, was pulled out of school. I was with RCA, who, you know, I ended up putting the first calling record out with. So really, since the age of 15, I've been in the business, and a little movie called Coyote Ugly that I was in, performing wherever you would go before we even made the album, that was uh, kind of my first break. So there was about four years between getting signed and then finally making and releasing that first calling record just because the label signed me really early on and wanted me to develop. And um, so there was a bunch of years there where I was working uh, to, you know, just to grow up, develop a bit, and obviously, you know, write the material on that first calling record. And I come from a bizarre Hollywood family. My dad's uh, <laughs> the king of the B-movies, Full Moon Entertainment. He's made all, like, 300 you know, B-movies, Puppet Master, Reanimator, Ghoulies. Oh, wow, you're kidding me. I had no idea. Yeah, Puppet Master, Reanimator, Ghoulies, Troll, Dolls. Uh, his first company did uh, the first Halloween. I mean, just cra- a huge, huge amount of content. Wow. And uh, so, you know, I grew up on the sets of, uh, you know, schlocky horror movies in Hollywood, you know, with, like, boobies and blood and <laughs> monsters. And it was definitely interesting. Do you remember the first time you got a huge reaction to your voice or to something you had you had done or sung or said? Yeah, actually, it was my first kind of live performance. I was graduating elementary school, sixth grade. I was 11 years old, and I, I at the graduation, asked my school if I could perform one of my songs acoustically, and I performed it. And, I mean, I still had this, a baby voice that kind of sounded like a girl, but people, uh, you know, I got the first, like, really good reactions, and I was like, wait, maybe I'm uh Maybe I'm pretty good at this. So then actually shortly after, my dad put up the money for me to go in the studio, and I made my first little demo recording at 12 years old, which uh, if you go to alexmaxband.com, which is one of the better fan sites, I think you can find it. And it's funny, funny stuff. Excellent. It's, wow. it's not too bad, but it's uh, it's pretty funny to listen to me with that voice and <laughs> singing about, you know, these deep songs about my wife dying and me, like... <laughs> Traveling the earth and loved, and I was like 12, so I don't yeah. know where that all came from. I was, it was a little bizarre. So, yeah, so I guess I had it in me since you know since day one. So how did the, how did the calling come to exist? How did this how was this formed? Well, the calling was uh, I was signed 15, and then my sister was dating this guy named Aaron Kamen, and we met. He was older, like five years older than me, as my sister is, and him and I started writing together and we were writing partners and the creation of the calling and he didn't do like most of the touring or like the visual stuff that he was always doing, uh, you know, creating everything with me. Gotcha. And, um, and did you know immediately that there was a, there was kind of a, a chemistry, uh, just a, yeah, totally. I mean, we both love the same music and we were both immediately mm-hmm. writing really great songs together. Like obviously wherever you'll go and a lot of those songs and, uh, you know, we hit it off, and we, you know, we worked together for a good nine years, something like that, before I, before I, uh, you know, moved on to go solo. You mentioned Coyote Ugly. When that, when that came about, that must have been huge for you guys. I mean, did, did a part of you think, well, well, hell, we've made it now, or, or did you <laughs> know that the real work had begun at last? Yeah. Well, it was actually kind of odd. It was those years I was with the label. Like I said, I was in a de- de- developmental phase. I was writing and writing and. I mean, Wherever You Go, I wrote when I was 16, and that was one of many songs that we, you know, submitted to the label, and we're like, is this good enough? Can we make a record? And they didn't care. So I really owe it to Disney and to Cowdy Ugly, because someone at Disney heard some of my recordings, and they heard Wherever You Will Go, and they're the ones who, even though that was just an acoustic recording, we hadn't made an album yet or anything, they heard that, and they're like, we want him in our movie playing the song. So that was a huge break, and that's what finally got the record label to care, take notice to us and get us in the studio. So, I mean, when we went to the premiere of that movie, we were just starting to make the album. So, you know, it was almost like that movie came out, and even though it was exciting, we still hadn't had an album made. You know, sure. It was like a rush, a rush to get the album out, and 
I mean, really, the, the single didn't come out become huge until years after that that movie had already come and gone. So the song wasn't um, even on the it wasn't even on the soundtrack, was it? No, my label did not want to put it on the soundtrack because they didn't want to ruin album sales. You know, meanwhile, that album, that soundtrack ended up selling 10 million copies. Absolutely. So <laughs> I really wish I wish I was on that soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, I ended up selling plenty and I have a great career, but I don't know. That would have been nice too. <laughs> Did you and Aaron always have a master plan? I mean, in other words, did, did you two guys kind of know intrinsically what you were aiming for, or did you just kind of take each opportunity and each stepping stone as it came? Yeah, I mean, we knew what our sound was, and once we made that first calling record, it was, you know, definitely kind of different than what was going on at the time. And, uh, you know, it was a hard battle to get wherever you go to where it got to at radio. It took us 10 months of working radio and traveling the country to, to break that song, and then, of course, it became huge, and then we worked the rest of the world and became huge everywhere, but that, uh, you know, it's not like we had the master plan. Of what we, we just wanted we wanted fans. We wanted success, just like any other band. You know, it, it's so funny. I, I mean, I've heard I've heard singers uh, for years talk about how, talk about especially singers from outside of this country, from England or Europe or wherever, talk about coming over here and trying to make it, and you don't realize how how huge and how distinctly factioned each part of this country is until you really start traveling around trying to, you know, meet people, get your music out there, get people to listen to you, get people to pay attention. You don't realize how massive this country really is. The way radio is set up here, unlike most countries, you know, I can go to, let's say, the UK, I can hit up Virgin Radio and, like, Radio 1, and if I get them playing my song, like, my job is done. Sure. Whereas in America, I've got to go to, like, 500 different stations all And shake everybody's hand and, and exactly. you know, really, really do the whole sell yourself. What I've been, yeah, which is what I've been doing the last four months, kind of like, hey, remember me, guys? And, you know, <laughs> I play my Santana hit, and I play wherever you go, and I play the new song, and play our lives, and some other calling songs that did well, and, you know reintroduce myself to people but it's yeah it's, it's a long battle and you know the, and the charts here are really slow i mean even after four months now my song's like number 30 on the chart i mean over in europe it's 30 top 15 so you know that's just in that and they started after here so it just shows you kind of the the speed at which things happen so yeah it's a breaking radio is really hard and even though radio is obviously i wouldn't say breaking down but it's changing and it's you know people turn to the internet more and obviously have their ipods and sure. all that stuff you know radio even though it's smaller than it was when i was working the calling it's still a really important aspect of getting your music out there um Absolutely. you know if you want to have big success you need to hit at radio so between going to stations and doing like you said shaking hands and playing on on air it's also doing radio shows and you know and all that kind of stuff and i'm fully independent now i mean i um, internationally, outside of America, I ended up signing with EMI for a traditional record deal because I, I can't, I can't release my album in you know 80 countries Absolutely. independently. It would be impossible. But in America, it is possible to do it fully independently if you have the money. So I, I've written, made my own record label here, and you know I'm running the show, which is a whole different experience. You know, being able to spend my money where I want to spend it. You know, see what's coming in, see what's going out take care of the people that work for me as best I can, not have labels screw everybody over. <laughs> you know, in the past in the past my band that I would hire would you know, be paid by the label and they would take six months to pay someone for, you know, a week's of work they did and people would be pissed off and you know, I hated that. So at least now I guess they control it better. You talk about going around and, and kind of reintroducing yourself. Do you find that people remember who you are or, or are you in some ways having to start all over again from scratch? It depends. Some days, you know, there's a bunch of fans there and they know who I am. Or, you know, the other days I'll play, let's say, like for listeners at a radio station, like 100 people. I'll put Wherever You Go or the Santana hit first in my set. So people are like, oh, my God, that's him. But I've, I've played shows in the last four months. People come up after. They're like, wow, you sound so much like uh, the singer of all those songs. I'm like, that is, that is me. Yeah. I, I wrote the songs. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because obviously I'm older now. I stopped dyeing my hair blonde. Now people, you know, unless they were teenagers when the calling was hitting and we were, you know, I was hosting TRL and all that stuff was happening, they wouldn't really know my face. So, you know, am I starting over from scratch? No, but 
would I say I'm starting over? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, talk to me about wherever you go. I mean, did you guys have the foggiest clue when you started really working with that song and massaging it, what you had on your hands? I mean, what a month really No. No, not at all. And even even up to five months ago when it was named, you know, number one song of the decade, I didn't Absolutely. know. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was a huge song at radio for the last decade, but I didn't realize it was the number one song of the decade. And it was that way in a lot of countries outside of America, too. So, you know, no, when I wrote that song at 16, did I have any clue? No. I mean, when we were working at a radio, did I have any idea what I was doing? No. <laughs> like, I just knew, you know, this is a good song. I wrote it. It's a hit. Come on. <laughs> you know? But I, I didn't realize the way it would you know, interact with people and how big it would become. You know, and here we are. 10 years later and the song still gets played as much as other songs on the chart. And it's, you know, crazy. You know, it's one of those songs that sounds really fantastic on the radio. I mean, you know, there, there are certain songs that are, that are great songs, but don't necessarily sound great, you know, coming out of yeah. car speakers or whatever. And that's one of those songs that sounds absolutely fabulous on the yeah, radio huge, coming out of the... A huge, part of, a huge part of that is Chris Lord Algae. He's a really famous mixer. He mixes, I mean, some of his bigger albums were like Green Day. American Idiot, and I mean, he's been doing it forever, but sure. he knows how to mix the song so that it will sound good on the radio. Like, that's his whole shtick, and he's mixed all the Calling Records and my new album, so I definitely owe that to him. He definitely makes it sound good for the radio. In the wake of 9-11, when this country was, you know, very desperately unsure of itself and, and you know, so much tragedy and sorrow and all of that, you know, that song really gave so much inspiration and hope to people of all walks of life, and I don't think I'm overselling it to say that and you know i know that that uh, the song may not have necessarily been written to accomplish that goal but i can only imagine that it fills you with with pride to look back and realize that that's exactly how it played out yeah i mean obviously that was insanely unfortunate and that whole thing happened right when we started working that song at radio and our album had just come out and uh i mean i was stuck in the, i was i had just I played New York six days after September 11th, and that was probably the weirdest experience ever. And, uh, you know, right before that, I was on tour with Lifehouse, and we were fucking, like, Milwaukee. For, I mean, we couldn't, there were, you know, obviously planes, everything was sure. stopped, and we were stuck, in, and it was, that was strange. But, I mean, yeah, did that song become a massive song of hope for people during that time? Absolutely, you know. And then I saw that song being played, you know, or hearing about fans that was played at the funeral of their family member or it was played at their wedding so like people took it both ways the song meant meant a lot of different things to a lot of people so that's pretty amazing to have a song that's, that's powerful for people and i've had a few like that where you know they're they're attached to huge things our lives for the second calling record and that song was you know closed the olympics in 2004 the closing ceremony it opened the oscar ceremony in 2005 number one all around the world and that song was played at you know tons of high school graduations and it was a theme song for a new cbs show that unfortunately got canceled but it was cool while it lasted you know regardless of the of the coulda woulda shoulda game that i'm sure you've played over your career and i'm sure everybody plays it over their career you were an integral force in one of the most played tracks in the history of pop music and that that's something that nobody will ever be able to take away from you and i i, I certainly hope that fills you with pride it does, yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to like remake that happen because that's obviously just something that probably will never happen again. But right now, I'm just, you know, hoping to have a good level of success where I can sustain this independent career and tour and put out albums, <laughs> not every five years. Like, how about every every year or, or even less than that? I got so much material after the last five years. I've got I imagine enough, so enough material to release, you know, four records. So. That's a good thing, you know. But, yeah, no, it's really exciting now to be back out finally. Sure. And uh, it was definitely a rough last five years. So. You know, you mentioned Santana a couple times. Talk to me about about why don't you and I. How did this opportunity come to you? Um, that was an interesting one. It was a song on his album that had Chad Kroger on vocals from Nickelback, and they wanted to release it as a single, but Chad Kroger, his label, Roadrunner, I believe, didn't want Arista, who was Santana's label, releasing it as a single because they thought it would ruin Chad's rock credibility or something like that. I don't know. Whatever the, the issue was, Chad had the idea of having me re-sing it and be the face of the single, which the, the label loved. So I ended up working with Chad and re-singing the song, and then I did the video and did all the 
work with Santana and shows and TV and blah, blah, blah. And that was uh, an amazing once-in-a-lifetime experience. Absolutely. All happened with Santana, you know. So. You know, for him, he was coming off he was coming off that legendary collaboration with Rob Thomas, which completely yeah. you know, reignited his career. And you were hot on the heels of wherever you will go, which kind of instantly put you on the map. Yeah. Were Were you present enough inside your mind to understand what an amazing moment you were living at this time? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, uh, you know, I can imagine with with everything coming at you from every which direction that the danger would be that it would all become a giant blur. And so I'm just wondering if you were cognizant enough I mean, to really yeah. <laughs> understand how lucky you were. At that moment, I was because it was just when I was—I just finished the two years of touring on the first Calling record, and I was making the second Calling record, so I had that time to really appreciate the Santana adventure and like where I was and what I accomplished, and you know, and obviously seeing the fruits of my labor financially, and I definitely got to uh, experience that and, and appreciate it for sure. Whereas those years of touring with the Calling, those first two years, there's definitely moments I remember, but so much of it is a blur. We went to probably over 100 countries and completely just insane, crazy experiences. So uh, talk to me about The Calling second record, too. You know, you guys really took your time crafting this sophomore album, and I can only imagine that the there was intense pressure to come up with something iconic along the lines of wherever you will go. There was, and I we had to get away from that because, you know, again, you don't recreate something that's so magical you can't sit there and say I think a lot of bands do that like we need to rewrite that song and <laughs> they either end up rewriting a song that sounds like it but worse you know and I don't I didn't know so we just kind of wrote songs and our lives was one of the first ones and felt really strong and that's what we went with that second record didn't have the sales success of the first one but it had the sync success you know songs were placed all over and you know, we still sold over a million copies, and I was happy with that. Still a number one songs around the world and scored, and nothing to complain about there. You know, I, I'm going to guess that you have uh, a million regrets regarding the way things kind of played themselves out with The Calling. Now that you've got the benefit of some hindsight, how do you look back on that time of your life? I was young, you know, and I didn't, you know, I should have been watching my ass a little bit better. I definitely got taken advantage of by friends, by family, even by label by everybody you know so i i definitely uh have plenty of regrets you know and also the way that we were promoted and uh we were so heavily pushed into the younger audience with trl and all that stuff you know that people didn't really take us seriously some people thought we were almost a boy band because i looked so young so I just, the, the way the label we were publicized i didn't really like and i would try to i would take that back and i think that had a huge issue with certain things, especially with the longevity of the project in America. You know, I only regret so much. So I get so much to be thankful for. Absolutely. You know, does part of you look back and think, I'd, I'd never be where I am now and know what I know now without having had those experiences? Those Yeah, exactly. I would never be doing what I'm doing now the way I'm doing it without I've gone through everything. And I do believe things happen for a reason. So as, as hard as the last five years have been, have been and uh, to get to this point, I'm happy I'm doing it the way I'm doing it here versus with the last label I was at, they would have taken this album, thrown it out <laughs> to the world, given me two weeks at radio, hit, and within a second they were going to just drop it all and then it would be an album that you just forget about. I'm really happy I'm not in that position. Are you still in touch with Aaron? Off and on. Um, you know, he's he's definitely a reclusive type person and I'm not sure what he does these days, but, you know, we talk every year or have lunch or something. Excellent. But uh, he, he doesn't really travel or get out much. So. so talk to me about life after the calling. I mean, you you know, we, as we said, you kind of laid low for a spell, and, and you're back with this new solo record. We've all been there. Was it hard to find the courage to take another shot at this music thing, or were you, were you itching no. to get started again? No, I was itching to get – and I never stopped. I mean, in 05, I left Clive Davis and – RCA to sign with Universal for my solo deal, and that took a year and a half of legal battling to get that to happen. Then the label loved the material I'd written, which is what you're hearing now in this album, but they wanted to try having me write with urban artists like Timbaland or Akon. <laughs> I, 
I had to fight them on that, and then I wow. fought my way to finally making this album the way I wanted to make it. But that was already three years had gone by. Then I finally made it, finished it. Then the label I was signed with, Geffen, which is under Universal Interscope, fell apart. And they were sitting on the record, and they said I didn't have the right first single. And I was just sick of it all, so I said goodbye. And it took a year to get out of that deal, to buy the album back from them, which was really expensive. And uh, and then took another year to build my record label. And you know, and it's not like I was a new artist who hadn't experienced it. You know, I just come from selling eight million records and having sure. hit songs and touring the world. Every day that went by was just probably ten more fans that forgot who I was. As these years rolled on, it was just so frustrating. I was like, let me put out music. What are we doing? As that was happening, too, I was watching the, the, the music business crumble, which obviously is turning into total garbage, mostly because of illegal downloads. So I'm like, you know, also racing the clock, like, let me get this album out before it's, uh, before the music business doesn't exist at all, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that was part of it. You know, talk to me about that. Are, are you flabbergasted by the enormous changes that your industry has had to face head on over the past, you know, number of years? Yeah, I mean, it's really sad. Now being an independent artist, I mean, and then investing easily over half a million dollars of my own money into this project, to hear, see people just stealing my albums that I worked harder than I than you could ever imagine to get out is just disgusting. Like, I must say that I cannot tolerate people stealing music, and it's just such a normal thing now. Like, you know, any young kid's iPod, if you grab it and look at it, it's like, 50,000 artists and 50,000 songs, you know, mm -hmm. like they, there's no albums, there's no, it's just all these little songs from people and they're all stolen and it's just <laughs> nasty. I really, really don't like it. And it's, you know, it's slowly becoming the norm that kids feel music should just be free and ultimately that's what's going to have to happen. And what they don't realize is a lot of these bands, especially the up and coming bands, because of stealing the music of the bigger artists, let's say, they're breaking down the business, breaking down the labels, breaking everything down to the point where new artists aren't getting signed as much, aren't given as long of enough chance, are failing before they could have had success. I've seen it happen. The artists that fans love and that are stealing their music aren't going to have music anymore for them to steal. So, it's, uh, so it sounds like a nasty catch-22. Yeah, for sure. And I just keep saying to people, look, I'm not on a major label. There's no, even if I wasn't a major label, there's no, re there's no reason to steal the music. So everyone's struggling, even the major labels are falling apart. So the fact that I'm completely independently funded, don't steal my music. Like, I'm relying on you to buy it so that I can make another album. That's it. It's that simple. If you don't buy it, then I don't make money and I don't make another album. And that's the end of me. So hopefully people buy it. So far they are. But, you know, I think for every CD sold, 20 were downloaded for free. And, like, I made a live DVD from Brazil last year, which is a really beautiful live DVD that, you know, I, I worked my butt off for a year and spent a lot of money on. And, you know, people love it. But, you know, I've sold a few thousand of them at the most. And if you go to the download website, you see the counts. I mean, one download website, 280,000. One other one's like, I think I've had over a million illegal downloads of the DVD, and I've sold like 1,500 of them. And is, is there no legal way to, to uh, I don't know, get some kind of injunction or, or kind of block these these sites from... Oh, yeah. Every day I have people working for me going to the sites and taking my stuff down. But, you know, every day, then it pops they up. Pop right up. up. And there's this one, the most evil site of them all is called Pirate Bay, and it's in some, like, weird alternate dimension. I don't know, some other country somewhere where no one can get to them and they know it and they're just evil. So when you send them, like we send them, my, my lawyer sent them the letter, they sent all the sites that get it taken down. They post the letter <laughs> on their site by your music, like going, ha, ha, ha. There's no way to even go after it. Mm. But I mean, I've already had my music taken down from at least 100 illegal sites, for sure. You yeah. know, I, I hate asking questions like this, and I'd, I'd wager you hate answering them, but uh, sum up the record for, for me in a sentence or two. What, what do we hear when we pop this in the machine? The new album is lush, cinematic, big. There's lots of strings. There's, you know, we... Um, I wrote a lot of the music, produced it with my guitar player, Dan D'Amico, and we definitely worked uh, 
more, you know, with electronic elements on certain songs. Um, you know, but it has that big anthemic, catchy, melodic stuff that you heard from the first and second calling records. So, you know, if you love Wherever You Will Go, you're going to find a lot of songs with that emotion and that heartfelt soul in it on this album. And, uh, you know, I really believe I made an album that you don't have to skip tracks. I think you're going to enjoy, which is great. I mean, that's what every artist wants and every buyer wants. Absolutely. An album that, you know, that's hard to find. It's maybe twice a year now I get an album that I'm like, you know, it's John Mayer's last record. I'm like, I like every song. Some more than others, but like I can listen the whole thing through and chill out and it's great. So you're doing, the, you're doing this largely on your own. Talk to me about the pros and cons of, of being out there and being your own man versus working within the label system. My ass is on the line more, obviously. The, the way labels work is they're spending their own money as much as they feel they should for your project. And, you know, if your project's picking up or doing well, they spend more money, and it's great because they have the money to spend, but then you have to pay all that money back for album sales, so you end up never really seeing money on album sales. The good thing is you have that person or that company putting the money into it at first, money that most of us don't have. So now I'm, like, fully self-funded, so if things don't work, <laughs> then I'm then I'm screwed pretty much. But honestly, I'd rather be in this position than, than the other one, than after the last 12 years or 13 years on the label. I'm happy to be uh, in this position and doing it myself. A little more nerve-wracking, maybe. Sure, sure. I, I, I can only imagine. But it's, I would imagine that the, the victories are also that much more thrilling. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, I mean even at, at this point, everything just disappeared, which is not. I mean, we're just building this thing, but... Even the fact that the album came out, that we sold a good amount of records the first week last week, that the singles top 10 almost in, over in parts of Europe, that I'm on tour, that I'm at, like, I, I accomplished it. Like, I fought the battle the last five Absolutely. years, and I'm already here. You know, do I want to have a better, le- do I want to get to a level of success where I'm in the green, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I'm working for, but I already feel vindicated for sure. You know, as as we've been saying, the Internet has opened up things to such a massive degree. I mean, the Internet is making it possible for, for us to have this very conversation. Talk to me about about digital music and about how you're using the Internet to help you write this second chapter of your career. Everything that we rely on on the Internet now didn't exist when I was doing the calling. There was no Twitter, Facebook, MySpace. You bet. You know, I mean, anything like that. iTunes is just kind of starting. So, I mean, the Internet's a huge part of it now. Internet marketing internet radio, the social networks, keeping up to date with the fans, keeping them in the loop with everything I'm doing. And uh, so much of the internet is beneficial. I think as much of it is evil too. So it goes, <laughs> goes both ways. You know, it, it, it's changed irrevocably the way we consume and process music. And I'm wondering if if the internet has changed the way you approach making music. Have you Have you had to... I don't know, kind of alter your your focus a bit to to take in the the fact that the internet exists and that it's a it's a major force in our lives. Honestly, no. I mean, the only thing making this record, which I would do anyway, is that I think is important now is you know an album as a whole is less of a commodity. It's about individual songs. So if you're putting you know people dissect your album, they listen to the 30 second clip on iTunes or something, yep. and they decide from that. So yep. You know, you got to make sure that every song stands alone, that there is no filler, because you're not going to get that out in sale. You're not going to get people to buy 14 out of 14 songs or 10 out of 14. So it was really important to have, you know, the 200 songs I wrote in the last five years to have the best, strongest material I could for that very reason. You know, and we are finding that people are buying the album as a whole more so than individual tracks so far, which is great. Um, you know, I worked on iTunes to create a full digital LP. So you not only do the album, you get an extra song, you get 15 tracks for $7.99, which is crazy cheap, and you get a 10-minute making of the album video. You get the music video for tonight. You get a whole interactive digital LP with the lyrics and the thank yous and photos, and you can listen to the music within this thing. So it's a really, really cool piece of work that I, that I put together. I'm proud of that. So how do you process and consume music? I mean, are you still a record store guy, or have you given over to the iTunes way? Yeah, no, I love iTunes. I use it all the time. You know, I never buy, I never go through and just dissect an album, though. If I like an artist, I'll buy the album. 
I found in my past albums when I used to have to buy the whole album in a CD store, if I would have listened to little pieces of songs, I would have been like, yeah, I don't like that. But like a band like ours, which never really took off, but the band I love, that's an album that I listened to at first and was like, eh, this is a mess. And then I listened to it more and it became some of my favorite music ever. So, but yeah, no, I love iTunes. I mean, I don't, I don't own any physical CDs anymore. They're all on my computer and on my iPhone. You know, you mentioned John Mayer earlier. What are you listening to? Whose stuff lights your fire right now? Some newer out, like a band called Safety Suit. I really like their albums. John Mayer, Coldplay, U2. I mean, those are some of my favorite Kings of Leon albums that came out. I mean, now, geez, it's been almost two years, I think. But that's a, such a genius record. And Absolutely. I don't really like any of the heavy pop stuff. I don't really listen to rap or anything like that. One Republic, both their albums are fantastic. Sure. Um, and do you have a favorite track on this record? Probably my favorite track is going to be the second single. It's a song called Will Not Back Down. And it was actually the last song added to the record, like, three months ago, like right at the end, it was a song I added, and I love that song. We're just starting to play it live, and it sounds killer, and that, that song's really strong. I think it's going to be a big hit. That's probably my favorite right now, probably mostly because it's new. You know, the other ones I've had now for five years, so, <laughs> you know, I'm just hearing people hearing it for the first time. I've, I've been playing them and living with them for years. You know, since The Calling had so much success placing songs on, on you know, television shows and in movies are you actively kind of seeking out these kind of placements for for your new music or or are you yeah i mean i've got i've got warner chapel and universal and independent sync coordinator and my management i mean everyone's finding places for my music i was recently you know we had music on Melrose place and vampire diaries and over in europe to send a new single tonight is in all the ads for the world cup which has been really big so i've gone over to germany and done some performances for the World Cup, which has been really exciting, and uh, we're constantly trying to find things. You know, as the song does better radio, we uh, a lot of people come to us, so that's starting to happen. So, what's on the horizon for Alex Band? I assume you're you're touring pretty extensively behind. We've all been there. Yeah, I mean, working the single, uh, continuing to do that, and now, like I said, we're you know with the whole band here, and we're. Uh, on tour with live now and then starting my first headlining tour in america in 60 years and that starts next week so really excited about that you know just a small club tour it's just four weeks long and uh it'll be intimate but full rock show and you know starting on the west coast making our way to the east coast oh i'm getting a call in from my management they're probably yelling at me do sex on uh and anyway, uh, got some TV shows coming up next month. We already shot it, but I have a performance of Wherever You Go and tonight on a really big TV show pretty soon, and that's going to be really cool. You know, I'm sure we'll start doing the late-night shows soon. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I really appreciate you stopping in here and chatting with me for a bit. Like I said, I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm a big fan of the record, and, and I am so thrilled to have you back, and, and I, uh, I wish you the best of luck with this. I really do. Dude, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Hey, before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Yeah, sure. As long as it includes the words Alex Band and Brandon's Buzz, anything else you say is totally up to you. What's going on? This is Alex Band, singer and songwriter of The Calling, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Fantastic. Thank you so, so, so much. Yeah, dude, thank you. I'm sure I'll talk to you again. Absolutely. The amazing Alex Band on Brandon's Buzz. Coming right back with singer-songwriter Jonathan Clay. Hang tight, everybody. You may not know the name of my next guest quite yet, but it's a fair bet you've heard his music. He's a favorite among the MTV reality set, 
where shows such as The Hills and The Real World have repeatedly played his songs. He's a Texas boy made good, and he's just released his second album, Everything She Wants. I am a big fan of this guy, and I can't wait to introduce you to my amazing fellow Austinite, Jonathan Clay. Thank you, uh, thank you for having me, Brandon. Absolutely, thanks for coming. You know, it, it, it's so funny that you're here today because several months ago, my, my best friend Sherry is a huge music fan like myself, and believe it or not, your music came up in her iTunes Genius recommendations. And she read up on you a little bit and found out that you were from Austin, and she said, you know, you need to get this guy on your show. And, and so it was hilarious when Jeff reached out to me last week, and, and I, was, I was going, yeah, I know this guy. That's cool. You know, it's a small world. I feel like I hear <laughs> stuff like that a lot. It's a cool thing, you know. Stuff like that can happen now. Absolutely. You know, this, this, this whole crazy digital world, I mean, it's kind of leveled the playing field for everybody. It's really, it's really quite amazing to see how everything is shaking out. Yeah, if you're willing to work and work it, you really can get your stuff out there. Damn sure. right. So give me the, give me the 60-second bio on Jonathan Clay. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Oh, 60 seconds. Elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I was born and raised in Texas. Went to school at Texas State in San Marcos, went there for a couple of years, and then, you know, decided to pursue music full-time. Uh, lived in New York for a little while. I was with a major label up there, and back in Texas now, and loving it, living in Austin, definitely feels like home. Wouldn't uh, wouldn't rather be anywhere else. You know, if I, if, I, if I have my info right, you were born in Magnolia, Texas, and, and uh, funny enough, I was just there last week. There's a, there's a big Renaissance Festival, not just down the road from there, and... And and funny enough, my family has several food booths there, and so uh, I had to go to a meeting there last week. And and uh, they're in. A, yeah, I've spent a lot of time there. I bet. Well, not a lot of time, but I've been there a few times. It's actually like 15 minutes from my house. Uh huh. Yeah, that puts Magnolia on the map. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, it's it's pretty much their only claim to fame besides like the Burger King. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And when I moved there, that wasn't even there. <laughs> it, it's grown though. It's grown though. I think. The population sign is, it's like this infamous sign in Magnolia, and it just says 1,111, and it's said that for about the past 10 years. So who knows how many people are yeah. there now, but it's, it's a small town, for sure. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is Houston is, is, is growing towards you guys so rapidly that there's, I mean, there's almost not a, not a difference anymore between Magnolia and Tomball and Conroe and all the little suburbs. I mean, it's basically all just one big city now. Yeah, I'm just sort of merging with like the woodlands. Yep. Conroe. Yeah, it's all sort of uh, you know homogenizing. So it, it it sounds to me from from reading a bit about you that music was always kind of it for you, even when you didn't necessarily want it to be. Yeah, I uh, no, I always sort of had desire to sing and to do it, but I think it you kind of reach a point where it goes from this thing in your head to something that you really want to get out and do. And, you know, I didn't play my first show until I was 18 years old. Uh, I was in college. And, <clears throat> you know, I was nervous and shaky and scared to death. But I got out there and I did it and I was hooked. I don't know, once I kind of made that conscious decision, you know, it's something that has really sort of driven and shaped the rest of my life in a really cool way. And what what led up to that, to, to making that decision? Can you Can you talk about? A lot of it was almost subconscious I think I was just I always felt like I was a smart kid but I didn't do well in school it was like my heart wasn't in that at all and just the regimen and the the day in day out routine of of something like that just I could not get into it it just could not hold my interest and so I went to school I had very mediocre grades I did you know I did so-so in school and it, and it just got to the point where I was focused less and less on grades and more and more on writing music and trying to start a little independent music career and trying to get my feet off the ground in that way. So it, it was a process. You know, I don't know if there was like a totally definitive moment, but it was something that eventually, you know, pretty much took over my life, and here I am now. So you talk about being nervous for that first show. How much? How much time between... You know, deciding that you were going to give this a shot and that first show elapsed. I mean, are we talking about years? Are we talking about months? What's the? I think a couple of years. I think it took a few years for me to muster up the courage and and the material to sure. actually face my fear of actually playing a show. And it's funny, I got up there with my guitar. I, I don't even think I said a word between songs. <laughs> I was just like a petrified. But I got through it, and you know, luckily I had some friends there who were uh, very kind 
and gracious and uh, patient with me. So it was an easy crowd. And, Excellent. You know, ended up being a good experience. You know, I, I, I would imagine you find that Texas crowds are pretty easy. It depends on where you go. You know, I think um, I wouldn't necessarily say Austin is like an easy crowd. I think Austin is a crowd that you really do have to kind of earn people's respect here. And you really have to work for your reputation and earn your reputation. You know, it's something I'm still working to attain. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think people in Texas are, are generally accepting and friendly. And, you know, they get excited about music and art and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's a good place to be. You know, if, if I have my facts right, you're, you're 23 years young, which means you were about maybe 10 or 11 when that big Austin explosion happened in the late 90s and, and artists like Fastball and, and, and Aubrey Moore and Sister Seven, Sean Colvin, uh, you know, all of a sudden they were kind of the toast of the industry. And I, I've always wondered what impact their experience has had on the next generation of burgeoning artists. I mean, did, did it excite you to see so much homegrown talent graduating to the big stage, or were you a bit too young to really appreciate the fact that all these people were from here and making it big? You know, at that point, I'm actually uh, just turned 25. Yeah. So you were you were a little bit older then. But yeah, you know, to be dead honest with you, I think I probably was a little young to truly appreciate it, because now I have a much better idea of what it takes to do that, and in turn, that you know gives me a, a lot deeper of an appreciation. So we've got a new album, Everything She Wants. You know, whenever, I mean, I know you're still kind of, you know, new at this. I mean, this is only really your your second time at that. But whenever you're getting ready to release something new like this out into the world, what goes through your mind? How nervous do you get? How how antsy do you get? Oh, I don't even think I've had time to get nervous for this release. <laughs> I've been so stressed. I, eventually, I really do want a label, and I want a team. I want a complete team of people helping me do this. Because doing it yourself is not fun. It's not easy and indie and just, you know, make your record, put it out, and make your living. It is, it's it, hard. It's not as romantic as it seems is what you're saying. It's not. Yeah. It's not like, oh, screw the labels. I'm doing this myself, yeah. and I'll just put my album up on TuneCore, and I'll be fine. And I did my album with no help. I think, personally, I'm at the point where I'm really trying to, you know, take things to the next level with this album. I've tried to do everything better than I did with my last release. My album packaging, down to the album itself, to my website, to my touring, to, you know, every aspect of my career, I've tried to, you know, look at from and, and build from the ground up again and build it better than it was the last time around. So, you know, I've spent more time on my computer than I have at my guitar <laughs> the last couple of months, and I hate that, but that's sort of the double-edged sword of Absolutely. being an independent musician is you, you really do, you have to be the jack-of-all-trades as far as launching your album. You know, especially I would imagine, especially in these times, because you know I was going to ask you about this later, but you know, things things like the internet, things like iTunes, things like MySpace. I mean, you know, the great thing about them is that you can you can get you know music up so quickly and so easily, and the bad thing about them is you can get music up so quickly and so easily. And so when the level when the playing field is level for everybody, it seems like to me, at least from the outside, it's harder for the good stuff to really stand out from the pack because there's so much more available. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point. I think there's uh, there's definitely some oversaturation. It's totally a catch-22 because I think it's really cool that it gives people the chance to express themselves creatively and for other people to hear that expression. I, I think that opportunity is there for people who otherwise it never would have been there for. And I think that's a cool thing because I think it sucks that a lot of making an album and being successful really comes down to, you know, finances and money and, you know, financial backing because that makes a lot of stuff happen and it makes a lot of stuff tick. So I think I think it's unfortunate that something as simple as just money can stop somebody from being able to pursue their career like they want to. So I think it's cool that people can make music now without very much budget and they can get it distributed with, you know, little to no budget and they can do it. But like you said, at the same time, I think there's people of their talent and their skill is all over the board. And, you know, you've got some great people. You've got some people who, you know, aren't so great. And everybody's trying to work their music. And so my only fear is that I think sometimes the, you know, listeners get so constantly bombarded with music that I think they almost get 
numb and, you know, at times resentful towards it. You know, they don't want another Facebook event invite. Yes, they don't want another friend request. They don't want another, you know, hey, just put out my album, come check out my music, Yep. you know, message on, you know, whatever social networking site is, you know, the newest thing. And yet, you know, in this day and age, uh, I mean, how crucial are these new digital outlets in getting your music and the music of so many artists in your situation out there to the masses? I mean, they're they're integral. They really are. The past five, six years, they have been, you know, the primary way, like these, you know, for some artists, the sole way of promotion and distribution. And I think it will level out in some way, to some extent. I don't really know where it's going to sort of land and end up, but I don't know. I think there's sort of a natural equilibrium. I think it will lose some of its effect. I think it will always be viable, but I don't think it will be as effective. I don't know if it will ever be ever be as effective as it was, you know, yeah. three years ago, yeah. four years ago, when people were really, you know, on MySpace, like looking for music, like really searching for new talent, really receptive to a message, you know, People were just much more receptive to it in general. And so I don't know if there will ever be, like, one single site like MySpace again. Mm -hmm. That was, like, that was it, you know? So talk to me about everything she wants. Can it be described with, with one sentence or, you know, one little blurb? Is it is it easy to peg? No, it's not easy <laughs> to peg at all. I feel like when I write, a lot of what I write and how I'm writing is determined by sort of where I am on my instrument, uh, which is guitar. So something like, you know, something like Gypsy Woman is really bluesy and, and just kind of, you know, real groove-driven. And when you take something like a song like Lucky to be Loved by You, it's, you know, when I wrote that, I was really into some Freddie Green, like, you know, jazz chord comping and stuff. So it's kind of got some seventh chords and some, you know, it's got a sort of a jazzy feel. And so, I don't know, it's it's all over the place. There's everything from sort of almost psychedelic to blues to singer-songwriter. It's a grab bag. Do you have a favorite track? I think it'd probably be Gypsy Woman just because that song from the get-go, I mean, from the second I stumbled upon that riff, it always just feels good. It's really fun to play, and it's it's just one of those songs where it's, it's so easy to mean it when you sing it. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to say it's my favorite. Excellent. You know, we talked earlier about your music being in being in a handful of television series and 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 films and and what have you. In this day and age, when the music business is in such chaos and such uncertainty, how important is that kind of exposure to artists, especially artists like yourself, who are you know completely independently produced, released the whole bit? I think TV it can obviously be a game changer. A big movie or you know a successful movie soundtrack, something like that. That is the holy grail. You know that's. <laughs> That's what everybody wants and sort of goes back to, you know, now that everybody's got an album and everybody's so competitive to try to get their music on TV, you know, you have music supervisors trying to get the best deal, budgets are cut, a lot of uh, networks are starting, you know, not paying artists, you know, for sync licenses and stuff, so it's turning into more of just an outlet for exposure, but it is... It's some amazing exposure, and it's, that's what everybody wants right now. I feel like TV is almost the, the new radio. Yeah, the new, I was about to say the exact same thing. It's because artists are – you can break an artist now with a really good placement. So uh, whose music do you like out there right now? Whose stuff kind of reaches out and grabs you by the heart? I am really into the raconteurs right now. They're probably my favorite band at the moment. Radiohead. Amos Lee, I don't know, some indie artists. I think Brendan James is fantastic. Sure. Uh, my musical taste is all over the board, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it changes frequently. But uh, yes, those are some of the guys that I keep going back to. You know, you can tell just by listening to your music that, that your tastes are pretty eclectic. I mean, you can hear a little bit of you can hear a little bit of Johnny Lang, but you can also hear, like you said, the echoes of of James Taylor, Dan Fogelberg. You know, those guys. It's 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 a pretty interesting combination when you when you listen to your music and and kind of try to suss out the influences. I feel like I innately sort of draw from that, and sometimes it's pretty apparent. You know, there there is a pretty diverse group of guys that I sort of draw from. But 
Yeah, that was almost a worry of mine. I was like, I don't want to make a Frankenstein record. I don't want to make a record of like ten songs in ten different genres. Absolutely. But so, like I said, I think there, I think there is some commonality, you know, throughout the record. But, <clears throat> but yeah, definitely some mixing of styles in there for sure. So, what's on the horizon for Jonathan Clay? I assume you're going to be touring behind everything she wants. I am. I'm working on putting that tour together currently, actually. Probably doing a Northeast thing, working on a CD release, uh, Hotel Cafe right now. So Okay. Should be pretty busy, planning on hitting the road and, you know, getting out and promoting this record and playing this record as much as I can this year. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can I can kind of hear in your voice that you're just itching to get out there with your guitar, like you said. And, and I am. Ditch the computer I for am. a while and just get back out there with the people and, and play some music. That's what I want to do. I mean, that's that's where my heart is at. I just, I'm tired. Like I think you nail on the head. I'm just tired of being in front of the damn computer. I don't want, I don't want to look at Twitter or my Facebook or digital distributors or any of that anymore. I just want to go play music. And you know, it's balance. It'll it'll balance out again. Right now sure. it's a little out of balance, but it'll it'll come back around. Yeah. So it it feels good. It feels good to get out and to play the record and to get feedback on the record and to see people who want to bring that record home. That's why you do what you do. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, I can't wait to hear it, and, and I uh, wish you the best of luck with this. I so appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with me about this, that, and the other, and I, like I said, I wish you the best of luck with everything she wants and everything you want. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Before I let you go, could I get you to do a promo for my show? Absolutely. As long as it includes the words Jonathan Clay and Brandon's buzz, anything else you say is totally up to you. Hey, this is Jonathan Clay, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, Jonathan. Cool. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me, man. The terrific Jonathan Clay on Brandon's Buzz, everybody. Thanks so much to him, and also many thanks to Alex Band for stopping in here this evening to chat. Brandon's Buzz in the can for July 27, 2010. If you're listening to the show, you already know, but in case you don't, Three places online to catch Brandon's Buzz, and they are as follows. blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That really is kind of mission control for the show. From there, you can listen to the show. You can download previous episodes of the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails. You, it really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at brandonsbuzz.com, my blog. At the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com, is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, it takes you to a full and complete radio archive of every episode of this show. This is episode number 63. This and all previous 62 are available in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. Again, just click the blue radio button at the top of any page there. Uh, You can also find me at iTunes, right next to Jonathan Clay, right next to Alex Band. Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box, scroll down to the podcast section, click on my logo, From there, you can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over the place. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm Brandon's Buzz everywhere on all of those sites. Just Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I assure you, something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check it hey out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir. 
et à très bientôt.